What's up, everybody? Welcome to an episode of Learning with Bell Vista Studios. And today I have Robin from Idle Courses with me. Um, and Robin, I want to acknowledge you because I think that you bring so much value to the community. You share so much tips and resources and you have your podcast and the academy. And I think that you impact the community really positively as well, helping people to upskill and land jobs. Um, so yeah. thank you for that. And I just think it's awesome you being you. So just wanted to acknowledge you for that first off. I mean, obviously you're doing the same thing. So we are kindred <laughs> spirits and I, it's a pleasure to be here. Cool. Well, yeah. I guess um, what I love about what you're doing is it's really obvious to me that you are applying instructional design to your business. So I actually wanted to chat to you about that today and have a different lens on instructional design because we can all say the same thing about instructional design. But I think if we hear it applied in a different context, the stories will be different and something might just click a little bit different for people. So I guess one of the things, if I just think of your website, because obviously I've been stalking you because I was like, wanted to learn lots from you. <laughs> um, <laughs> The first question I want to understand is how do you decide what products, services, and the direction of your business as a whole, how do you decide that stuff? Well, how do I decide it now? Or how did that, how do I just, how did I just like come up with it at the beginning? Cause no, now, now I, like, like probably in the last 12 months and where you're headed in the next 12 months. Yeah. So I think that, um, Right now, it has everything to do with just the community um, that has been built up in the Facebook groups and on LinkedIn and um, really like people just message me um, directly on Facebook. And so getting that learner feedback, if you will, I mean, just to, since we're talking instructional design terms, yeah. um, really, they tell me how to serve them is how I view it. So for instance, um, even inside the academy, I have freelancers and they come to me for advice inside the academy about all things about freelancing. And so then, you know, then I partnered with Chrissy Tucker and Nicole to do that freelancing boot camp. And, cool. and then even like with inside the academy, um, I noticed that they asked me for certain things. And because I continue to kind of do just in time training, mm -hmm. um, everything's recorded already in there, but I'll notice because I do feedback on their on their work and on their assets. I notice things that are missing, um, like as in the cohort overall, and so that makes it really clear for me. Well, what do they need next? Um, and so that's kind of where you know that part of my business is going. But really, in like next future, mm. like next year or whatever. Um, what's really cool is because I love making digital course products. Like I also have one for uh, people who want to become veterinary assistants in the U.S. And then um, I have people in the academy who also are interested in their own passion pro projects. And they come to me because they have a course idea that they know they could sell. But like it's all the things that you got to do to get it ready for market yeah. that they bring it to me and I partner with them. And so... Um, right now I've got one in the works for a real estate license course 
um, and things like, and like have coaches. And so I really, in the next year, I want to keep building digital course products. That's, that's cool. That's so, where I want to go for myself and clients. Yeah. So you listen a lot, it sounds like, and it, yeah. you're pushed or pulled towards where the need is. And I guess for instructional designers, this is the A of Addy. It's the analysis. You're really being told there's a need for this. Um, how do you manage your own personal passions and interests? Or does it just happen to like meld really well? Oh, it happens to meld really well. I find that one of my favorite things to do now inside, uh, you know, inside the business or whatever has to do with project management mm -hmm. and it has to do with building out landing pages, which is so random. <laughs> I don't, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's like being the instructor in the academy. That's one part yeah. that I, that I obviously love, but as far as like, you know, the things that I do, it has I hard I hardly like specifically go in and um, get my hands dirty. I'm always like a reviewer at this stage, um, and I find I really like that role. I really like being in that place yeah. um, where I kind of get to direct the whole thing, but I'm not necessarily the individual contributor. Yeah, that's makes cool. sense. Yeah, yeah, totally. Then okay, so you're listening. There's all these needs identified that you see that your community or your learners need. How do you prioritize what you should focus your time on and produce next? So inside the academy, it's priorities based on what I'm seeing coming through my email. My email. Yep. Like for instance, you know, they send me their things I, and I start to notice patterns. And so if I see a pattern, like for instance, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this, but I will because whatever. Um, so there was a pattern that I noticed inside the academy for this um, third cohort, which is um, a lot of the first and second cohort, they came in, they understood what instructional design is. I think that they kind of had those core concepts in place, yeah. but they just needed all the other things to get a job. Yeah. Um, but in this third cohort, um, I've attracted students that, um, are missing some of the fundamentals of instructional design. And while a lot of that can happen through practice and building assets, yeah. um, when I started seeing things that look like blog posts instead of a course, yeah. um, I realized that I needed to just go through like Merrill's five principles of instruction. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. just like, you know, it's got to be problem centered and we've got to do application. And, and so I just set up that next Friday, I'm going to do a training on that thing and that became a priority because like I, I can't even if I could get you a job in instructional design that you can't come out of the academy and not know how to design a course because that would just be a failing that would be like a failure on my part <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. so that's how I prioritize that one but then the other one um it's just like you said I mean it has I, I mean when I realized well you know I know that you are doing great things for freelancers over in Australia, but there's also, you know, the market is large and whatever. And mm. so, um, just the ability to partner with those other two for the freelancer bootcamp, cool. I thought would be one good for people, but also honestly, I'm really kind of curious to see inside their businesses. And it's always, um, <laughs> it's like, a, it's kind of cool. Like part of me to do this course 
And since you're going to be teaching with me, I get to look under the hood of your business too. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, you also get to share um, email subscribers and that kind of thing. So I really want to do a partnership. Yeah. And I think probably the third thing that I'm going to do will probably be because like the last module that's going to be in the boot camp is kind of like a primer on how to create and sell digital course products because I think that they are important for e-learning freelancers. Yep. Um, especially in today's market and on the fact that like what it's like a $35 billion industry to sell courses online. Like why shouldn't instructional designers be making them? Yeah. Well, a lot of times they're not because they are missing some fundamental pieces um, yeah. like marketing and um, graphics and all that other kind of stuff and sales pages. Yeah. And so that might actually probably lead into something about teaching instructional designers how to create digital course products. And so it just kind of comes out organically almost. Yeah. Does that make really sense? Cool. It does. Yeah. But I think there's lots of like testing and looking at data. So a big thing that I just picked up there is you are looking at data to determine how you prioritize things. So you're looking at patterns and that's the kind of measurable business goal. If we think about looking at working with clients, you know, how many bullying harassment complaints are coming through, what specifically yeah. are they about? But what you're doing is that from a different perspective, um, which I think is really cool. So you're listening, you've identified a need, you can see the measurable business goal for you, um, which is quite cool and that helps you prioritize. And just actually one thing I noticed that you do really well and all the tools that we're mentioning, I'm documenting them. I'll put them in the description, but you've got a great tool for people that are thinking about doing their own course that you go through and figure out, look, is this even sellable? Um, so I had a look at that. I think that's really cool. So I'll put the link in the description to that one as well. So this then brings me on. So you got the needs there. You know that you can have an impact through your business goal. Um, your measurable thing. That's great. Then it's about prototyping and testing. How do you do that in your world? So, I mean, if we're talking about my world, like digital course product worlds or my client world, I reckon, those are two different things. Let's go with like your vital courses or the boot camp that you're talking about. Something like that. Okay. So for instance, um, even like with the Academy, mm. I did, um, I did a founding members launch Okay. and in that launch, I only had one thing ready for them when yeah. they enrolled, which was the, how to build your online portfolio. And cool. I had, you know, 12 little tiny lessons that take some step-by-step. -step. I had a workbook, um, and you know, they had to take action before they went to each of the next lessons, but that was it. Yep. That was all that I had in there. And then everything else was based upon feedback from them. Like, yep. what do you want to learn next? They said, like, the first, I gave them, like, a list of things of what I thought they needed to learn. And um, one of those things on the list was, like, oh, um, how to do interviews. And I thought that would have been, like, the last thing that they chose, you know, like. Yeah. And it was the first thing. So the very next lesson that I gave them was how to in, how to master your interview that's cool and um so and so every week i just i would pull them what do you want what do you want to learn and then from there of course you start like you said you start getting data mm -hmm. because you start seeing what they are delivering to you because 
you're implementing feedback. And so I think that's, um, that's, and I encourage, I I do some consultations for people that want to do digital course products too. Yep. And you have to like get people on the phone and ask them what their challenges are. I started a Facebook group. I pulled some of them off of the Facebook group to get on the phone and just say, how can I help you? And just help them over the phone. But also what I'm doing is I'm, I'm taking notes. Like, yeah. how can I help you? What's hard about this? What can I do to fix this problem for you? Yeah. Um, and I did that for every program except for my veterinary assistant program. Okay. I thought I could sell that to veterinarians. I was wrong. I should have done my market research. But now I've done my market research for people who want to become veterinary assistants. So uh, I followed my own advice after a failure. But <laughs> Okay, so talk to me about that. Why did you do something different with that approach? Yeah, so Vital Courses is actually the first digital course product that I ever built. Cool. And I built it in, I built it like without doing any market research. Mm-hmm. Without, uh, you know, I, of course, had subject matter experts who were veterinarians and vet assistants and blah, blah, blah. And they're yeah. all like, yeah, we all need this. We all need this. But that's like, that's an echo chamber coming from inside the industry. It's not, it wasn't me going out and pre-selling yes. that course to, um, well, in that case, it would have been other vet clinics. Yeah. If I would have done that, I would have realized that there's not, that veterinary clinics do not pay for training. Um, and then I would have pivoted or I wouldn't have spent all that money. But the great thing about when you do create courses and you realize that you have chosen the wrong market is that for instance, because it's a how to program, Mm -hmm. I'm now, I can now shift it. And now I've called people who want to become veterinary assistants and I put them through the course and I got their feedback and I got them on the phone. And so now I know how to talk to them and how to package that course for them. But brilliant yeah that was my first one it was i did not look at my market at all which everything's an experiment that's the thing you're always <laughs> learning like many years into business you're like oh shit that was a an f up you know and then, yeah so you just gotta adjust um i like what you're saying there so the summary for me on that part of it is you know we or subject matter experts can have a perspective on things but it's really important to do your user testing. So interviewing is one of the things that you discussed and really speaking to them because you need to understand their world um, and what is the context. Like for example, vets don't pay for training, but new people (laughs) trying to get in will invest in themselves because they're trying to get the job and put themselves above everyone else. And another way that you can do that is um, observing. So if you're in a corporate world working with clients or you're working within your own organization, go out and watch people do the thing that you're trying to train on to see how it all works, what's going on from a knowledge, skill, motivation, and kind of culture perspective and processes, what exists, all that kind of stuff. So yeah, basically summary of kind of my transferable skill from what you've been talking about is talk to your users. Don't just assume that you can solve the problem and you have all the answers or that your subject matter expert does. Yeah. And also, um, thing I really found helpful, uh, in corporate training is like, yes, to the users and also pinpointing that, that, that master student or like the one oh. that is like the high performer. Yeah. Cause those, those people really sh- like shed light on 
Like, what are those tricks that they're doing? You know, why are, why are you the best salesperson? Yeah. And then you find out, like, what? Mindset? <laughs> How do I teach mindset? <laughs> this is cool because this actually leads into my next question. Um, and it's about motivation. So it's all great to do this user testing um, and find out the need and have a solution. How do you convert people from... How do you get people to pay for something? Because it's always great for them to go, yeah, I love your idea, Robin. That's amazing what you're doing at Idle Courses. I fully support you. And then next minute you're like, give me five bucks or whatever it is. So sure. how do you do that? Uh, I'm still learning. No, I mean, <laughs> well, it's the thing. It's, um, I think it's not just a one-time event, okay. right? It's about... Can I, am I the best person to solve their problem? Um, and have I presented my solution to their problem in a way that speaks their language, mm -hmm. um, resonates like w with whatever is going on um, in their current world? And is there enough people who can testify that this has worked for them too? Don't worry. It really is all that, you know, she promises it will be. Yeah. kind of thing. And, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with from the very first time that I opened up, uh, become an idol. Um, you know, I gave and gave and c continue to give to that Facebook yeah. group, um, for like a good eight months before I even offered, um, some kind of paid offer. Yeah. Anytime people emailed me and still today, if you email me, um, and it's our first time, actually just anytime you email me, I'm not a writer. Mm -hmm. I am a talker. So I record video messages, like yeah, I same. record my voiceover to on the video and like that's my response to you. Um, and, like, and I really give like thorough answers. Um, and so it's, you know, they say nurturing. I mean, I guess that's a word for it, you know, mm. nurturing, but really it's, I just give and give as much as possible until it really becomes a place where if I'm to give you more, it makes sense that you pay for it. One, um, they become invested in their own journey yes. and in their own solution of doing the work. That's really important. Doesn't matter what I do if somebody doesn't do their homework or yeah. you know turn in assets or get like do something to get feedback on. Um, and then of course you know so that's number one is they become invested. And two, like it allows me to focus and deliver the best of what I got. So if you see what I give for free, then you know if you come into my paid programs, then no, I mean, if you, the world is yours. I, I make a solemn promise to every single person that comes into my programs that I, you know, whatever my course promises, it is my promise to you, you know, to make you an instructional designer or to help you be the best freelancer or whatever mm -hmm. it is within my power. Um, and I think that's, I mean, it's about people believing that you can deliver on your promise and solve their problem. Yeah, I think you do that really, really well. I haven't <laughs> personally gone through any of your stuff, but what I can see is you giving value, you really care, and the things that people say about what your mission is about and their experience of it, I think that then does help other people that are kind of going, oh, should I, What you know? it secures that decision for them. Um, so I think you're doing a really good job of that. 
In terms of, there's so many great tips that you've just shared there. How do we transfer, let's think about people that are working in L&D now with, um, and they don't have that time to build the community, to build, to nurture and do those things. And generally it's just like, make this training course. Now go do it as a learner. Do you have any insights or thoughts on how to apply what you do in your world for people working in the corporate land? Yeah, well, I think it has, you know, when they do, we do what we call launch runways, you know, and yeah. digital course products. I think yeah. it's very similar um, in corporate. You can do a launch runway with your future learners. Um, and that, of course, requires you to nurture and get the buy-ins from those managers from your stakeholders or whoever is going to be the one that um, holds those people accountable and yeah. encourages them to take your training. Mm -hmm. um, and then, of course, if you're doing the part where you're going around and you're talking to your, your learners or you're getting them on the phone and you are telling them that you are creating solutions for their problem um, and you create a launch runway of sorts where Maybe they have your the managers have a meeting about it, and um, they see the surveys coming in. Like, what do you want to learn in this, or you know, what's yeah. frustrating you? And when they see those kinds of things, it's it's like it's like they're kind of aware that a course is coming. Then they have a meeting, and a manager is telling them about that this training is coming. And then there's like you know an announcement that comes in their email or whatever. Yeah. That's kind of like a, a mini version. So those launch runways, and there's many different ways to do that. But I think that's the same, a similar thing you can do in corporate just to kind of get people excited. And there are other ways that you could even like integrate incentives or mm -hmm. make it exciting or, you know, reward people for um, their interest in, in your training program. That's cool. It reminds me of um, a blog that Hannah's writing at the moment on the mirror exposure effect. And so what if you're looking at like, you know, calling people, letting them know managers are talking about in meetings, all this stuff building up to it as you're just um, actually doing instructional design and developing the course, just the fact of them hearing about it and it being in their world over time, they are more likely to like it and it will appeal to them because it's just been in their lives. And then they're like, oh, yeah, here it finally is rather than yeah. like here's the training, you must do it. And you've heard nothing about it. And then you're like, why are we doing this training? So I really like that. That's cool. Yeah. And even bringing them in for like um, uh, beta testers. Like one, my, the first time I ever made a gamified course, I had to have users come in and test it because there's so many ways it can break, especially when you have like all these <laughs> yes. variables and like dings and whatever. Um, and so just the fact that like a lot of them had come in and were part of helping me fix the course and find errors and trying to break it that also made them more interested like when they saw the final product and take the course because they had a hand it was like they were like co-creators yeah that's cool um i'm yeah. just thinking the thing that people would be pushing back on right now in their heads are we don't have time my organization won't give me the support to do that kind of testing or build a campaign running up any tips of like quick wins or things that they could do? Yeah, you could just do an email series. You could mm -hmm. write it all out at once. You could have, you know, this is what, you know, you do in the digital space or whatever. Yeah. You could do a similar thing um, in your business. You could even like 
hand over like three or four emails and say, um, send this out on this date, this date, this date, and this date from your office. And then you just keep that template and have that be your little mini launch. Yeah. Every time you launch a, a course product or bury it up, put something fun in there, like gifts or whatever's appropriate for your yeah. culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love it. I think, and the thing is with that, like you could literally just spend two hours to set up your emails, like write them and get them sorted for when you're going to do it and just pop it in your calendar for when you need to send them out. And yeah. like two hours on the scheme of things is nothing. So the success, like I'm sure you'll agree, the results and uptake and impact of your training will be higher if you take that two hours to do just a simple email series, like you said. Yeah. And even maybe an email series, like kind of like follow up, like, Hey, did you see that really cool part <laughs> about whatever lesson? Yeah. <laughs> That's actually something just as you said that even the way you say it, little eyebrows going and stuff. Um, I think bring personality to it, bring your like who you are into it because we always get the corporate blah, blah, blah kind of email. Um, what we used to so then you don't stand out people's curiosity doesn't peak so I think bring whatever you're about and the passion and your why about the initiative or your own um, training course that you might be trying to sell bring that into your communications and really just allow you to shine because people will resonate with that as well yeah usually when you get those emails they're like you are out of compliance. You must take the sexual harassment course right now before you get the error of out of compliance. That's usually what they look like. That's usually what training emails look like here. Oh. That's funny. Well, it's like the point. evil character maybe from like a Disney movie or something. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so I want to switch things a little bit because there's two other things that I think you have great experience in that I want to get your opinion on. Um, but thank you for playing with me in that, like, how do you do it for your business so that we can tell people different yeah. stories about um, instructional design and how it flips to their world. So next one is uh, uni curriculums, university or college. Yeah. I guess, I don't know, there's probably people that have done that role for a long time. It's an older industry. I wouldn't say there's... I don't know, actually, so I'm making assumptions. That's very naughty as an instructional designer. Um, so, but what are your tips for people that are writing curriculums for universities that they can actually develop courses or curriculums for our world today? You mean make a transition from higher ed to corporate? No, no, no. Like they are like a uni lecturer, so they're still doing it, but they just, I guess that world, like if you're in that job, you're, you've been doing it for a long time. You just want to simplify how you write the curriculum for your year or your semester. Um, and it's easier just to get it done and then put your students through it. But I think that they could improve the learning experience in their classroom um, by doing some of the instructional design kind of practices or methodologies. Do you have any tips to help them take action on even one thing to improve their classroom experience for their students. Because I find like when I went to university, I did, um, what did I do? Like human resources, leadership type stuff. But it was like from many, like decades ago, when I went into the real world, it didn't apply. I may as well not have gone to university. Um, everything I learned is on Google. So I'm just thinking like there has to be like 
better ways of doing it to design curriculums for like today's world. Do you have any insight or suggestions for that or perspective? Uh, I think the part that is missing uh, from university curriculums, but I think they try to do a better job because um, I've written, you know, written courses for um, online universities and so on and so forth. I think the part that really is missing is that application uh you know and the thing is is they say well we do do application because we have them write final papers oh yeah or um you know we have these you know formative assessments that build up to the summative which is you know this miles i mean this large final project yeah or whatever and then the other thing about that final project is they don't get feedback usually till after that course is over because it's a final project unless they do it where the final project is due like a week before and then maybe they'll get feedback. Yep. But those final projects, a lot of them look like they look like papers and they are papers. And so m many times, you know, the things that um, we don't use in, you know, in the real world is because we didn't actually have any kind of application in the university program. And of course I, you know, I'm thinking about instructional design, for instance, mm. you know, you never actually build a course from start to finish um, for any purpose whatsoever, yep. not in a master's program, not in my PhD program. Mm -hmm. And so that just having, just thinking more instead of like a final project being a paper, but it being something applied. And there's so many ways that you can show application at the end of a program mm. and even build in milestones to work towards that final application. I mean, the fact that you can like video yourself doing a thing now and like yeah. submit that, um, or, you know, you can get sign offs from people who witness you do things, or um, you can take a series of pictures, you can present on a project. Uh, I know, for instance, um, when I taught world religions, one of the things that I would have them do is go and visit like a religion outside of Christianity in the neighborhood and like go and visit them and um, take pictures and then come back and do a presentation and report back and teach the class about that religion and what they learned when they went. So I think it's, I think application would help. That's awesome. And for their summatives. Cool. I really like that. Thank you for sharing. Um, last question is around tips for people writing their resumes to land jobs. Cause I know this is a strength of yours that you'll have some great tips. So what have you got? Okay. So I got quite a few, but <laughs> we, we get a little comfortable. So, um, Glass of water. is this for, is it, I, I know I don't have one. I actually keep looking for it. Okay. So is this for instructional design resumes? Yeah. If you're an okay. instructional designer, yeah, your community, the people that you resonate with, let's deal with them. Okay, so I would encourage you to have two resumes. One resume is your text-based, like, so it's easy to throw into the applicant tracking system when you are, um, if you're uploading a resume and you haven't, like, networked your way into that um, resume nice. database or whatever, yep. um, is you want a text version. And you also want a beautiful PDF version. And I really highly recommend that for instructional designers. You can get a template off of Etsy. Yep. You can get uh, you, 
Canva does some nice ones. Um, you can go and buy one off of a creative marketplace. I mean, if you're, mm. I mean, if you don't have like top notch graphic design skills, which not, not, not many instructional designers do, I recommend that you go and buy a template. They're like $5. Yep. It's going to make a world of difference for you as far as standing out, because I think you should write two resumes because you're writing one mm -hmm. for the computer and you're writing one for the human. And so a computer is going to, you know, read your text-based resume and look for your keywords. Yeah. You should have keywords that come directly Robots. out of that job description yeah. and are put into your resume. So you maybe want like a boilerplate type of template of your resume yeah. that has, you know, all of your dragon slaying moments there in your yeah. resume. Um, but then for each job that you apply for, you take, you pull those keywords out and make sure that they show up a couple times in your resume that you upload there. Um, which you, it makes it really easy if you already have a boilerplate one that you then grab those new keywords and put it in there. Yeah. Um, and then you have the pretty version, which yes, you know, you can update with your um, job description keywords. Um, but really it's so that it makes the human smile. And it's so that they like see that you have... You know, like you have an eye for detail. You can present yourself well. It still has the dragon slaying moments there under each of your positions. That's relevant work history. You list a bunch of your skills in there. Um, and and many of those um, systems allow you to, they allow you to upload both a PDF and a text-based version. So that's why I recommend that you have both. And a lot of times you, the one that you'd send say you do get a network connection, you'll have the pretty one ready to like just send to them directly if it doesn't have to go to African tracking system. Very clever. I like that. Yeah. Um, what are, what would you say the structure of the resume should be? Like, yeah. yeah, I don't know, experience, qualifications, how would you prioritize the hierarchy on the first page? So if you are transitioning, then you do relevant experience mm. and you give yourself if you're a teacher you say teacher slash instructional designer slash um you know e-learning developer or whatever yeah um because even if you are a teacher you usually are developing courses in an lms you are writing curriculum you're instructionally designing for your classroom and you're probably doing some professional development for your peers yeah um and so that's so you write your title where you include instructional designer and then i mean your dragon slaying moments is data that's your, that's where your qualifiers mm. come in. Like I taught this many students. I created this many courses. Um, I had, um, you know, this percentage of feedback on my surveys and I implemented this process that went global for this many people or, um, that kind of thing. So all relevant experience with those kind of moments yeah. underneath. Um, and you know, most of the, when I am students in the Academy, I have them create resumes where they have the skills are really highlighted. They're kind of put on like a little corner, like a yep. table on the side. Yeah. Uh, but really just anywhere where the skills all jump out at you, right? Yep. Because that's just so important in our marketplace is to be able to know at least some of the tech yep. and then show that you have an aptitude for it. Yeah. Even if you have to learn other pieces of tech <laughs> and that project management, don't forget don't forget that part. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. And then, of course, you know, 
everything else follows suit, you know, education mm-hmm. and leave references off. People, people kind of like, well, especially in the U.S., maybe it's different mm-hmm. other places, but people uh, seem to be turned off if people include references on their resume. Oh, how come? What are you noticing? Um, we just saw uh, recruiters have been saying things about it. Um, I was a, I don't know if, I, well, people probably don't know, but um, my last full-time working job was as a director yep. of learning and development at a recruiting and staffing firm. Oh. And so I, my office was right next to the recruiting yeah. kit, as they called it. And <laughs> All so the gals tell us. <laughs> yeah. So I would hear them say things about like, why do people put their references on there or whatever? Wow. I want them. I'll ask for them. And Yeah. Well, definitely, I would say here the culture is that it's expected to put on there. Like, I don't know if it actually is, but we have been told maybe through school or whatever, put your references at the end. Um, yeah. That's quite cool. But I know in Australia, um, if you get an interview, they are, I think they have to ask permission to call your references anyway. So then you can hand them over and say, yeah, this is the person you need to call. And then that's also like a hint because, you know, when you like apply for a job, have an interview and then you're waiting. Um, that's also when you know, like if they ask to call your references, you're doing pretty well in the process um, and you could be getting a good call in the next like couple of hours. So, yeah. Yeah. You'll get that offer letter. Goddamn. that's awesome um i feel like i've exhausted my questions for now because you've given me so much really good stuff and so thank you for that is there anything burning that you're like can i just share this kim what is burning for me i don't know i don't even know what's burning for me i just I just want the stuff um, on your stove, dinners, <laughs> dinners burning away in the background. Yeah, right. I got a ninja foodie. I don't even cook on the stove anymore. Oh, that's cool. I know. We can't talk about ninja foodie. That's way off topic. <laughs> I'll put the link in the description. Y'all can get the affiliate link. <laughs> okay. I want to try a new thing just to end off um, this particular podcast. Um, so it's a quick fire round. I've got five questions. I just want your quick response to it. First question. Dun, dun, dun. We need like cool music to play here. Alright, what is the core skill we should be learning right now and why? The core skill that you should be learning if you are new to instructional design is Merrill's first principles of instruction. Uh, that's the thing that I've noticed is missing. Um, from a lot of new instructional designers. If you are an old school instructional designer, I think that the thing that you should be learning um, has to do with something that's old, but still emphasize that's new. And that is um, talking to your learners and more of that learner experience design. And all I just mean is just like what we were just talking about is talk to your learners. That's that's core skill. I like that. Um, and I don't know about Meryl, so I'll be Googling after. Um, what could the L&D industry do better and how could they achieve this? For me, the answer to this question is that the L&D industry would do better by trying to sell a course online. <laughs> and I say that because you, all, the whole process that you go through instructional design gets really tight and really focused and really zoomed in on when you realize that you have to do every single step and you got to do it right or nobody's going to buy. 
And if you had that same kind of mindset when you brought it to your corporate audience where you need to interview your interview uh, learners, you got to know your market, you got to launch your course, and you have to make sure that your course is driven for results. Um, and that includes, of course, like giving you know them application exercises um, and then getting their real feedback to make that better and to prove that your course works, then um, courses in corporate would be, they would be better if they took advice from people who try to sell courses. One million percent agree with you. I think that is fantastic. Thank you. All right, number three, what is the one principle you apply to solve the business problems you work on? What's the one principle that I apply? Yeah, or methodology or like process that you kind of always use. Process that I always use. I mean, it's pretty much most people's process, but I mean, it has to do with like, what do you want? What's your problem? What kind of course do you want? Because, you know, I'm a I'm I'm an, I'm somewhat of an order taker mm -hmm. as uh as you learning business so um, it's a little it's a little bit different. <laughs> All right. Uh, but the process is the same, you yeah. know. But the the client call is is very different, you know. Like oh, I got this for you, kind of call. <laughs> yeah, I get that. <laughs> we yeah. have them too. Um, yeah. what are you learning at the moment? Oh, I actually, I, okay, not only do I, you know, create digital course products. Yeah. I'm, I'm like a junkie. I buy them all the time. Um, I yeah. remember I've bought um, digital course products just to see. I've paid $2,000 just to see inside a beautiful course before. Like, no joke. Yeah. Um, uh, it was quite beautiful, but I will say um, there were, you know, it was, it was baby stuff, but it was so well done. Um but I am currently in a course with Anna Sabramowitz, and it is her e-learning secrets course okay. about the interactive, um, interactive storytelling, and it's it's so good. I mean, just like the frameworks that she's giving, and I've never really, I mean, I know stories are important, but yeah. I never really kind of tried my hand at building a full scenario-based e-learning course, and mm. her, and um, learning from her has actually kind of got me pretty excited about it. And I've seen some really cool, like student projects in there. So that's what I'm currently learning. I like it. That's really cool. Yeah. Actually, I just want to, um, this is a book that I bought over a year ago, people, but it's called Storynomics and I haven't read it yet. That's, I'll put it back in the pile of shit that never gets looked at. Um, but might be, I heard that it would be really good for transferable skills for the L&D space. So those of you that are book people, I'm more an audiobook. That's why I haven't picked it up and read it. Um, suggest that. What are you about? This is meant to be quick fire, but now I'm like curious. Um, your $2,000 course that you wanted to see inside. What were the two things that resonated with you that you're like, wow, I want to do that for my courses because it's so special. Yeah, so I actually bought that course before I launched the academy, yeah. um, before I ever set it up, because um, I wanted to be, I mean, I still do, I want to be like the best of the best, Yeah. so I wanted to see like inside what the best of the best yeah. looks like, and it's actually um, Marie Forleo's B-School. Oh, yes, heard of it. Yeah. She's cool. So, she has a lot of little touches in there mm -hmm. that just, oh, they're just so lovely. For instance, 
Um, she has a custom-built LMS. It looks like it's built on top of something like LearnDash, yep. but you can tell it's been customized um, in just kind of a little bit of a special way about um, the way her course is set up. Yeah. But also, every time a module you fit, complete a module, you get this little email from her. I mean, obviously, it's automated. Yeah. But you get this email, and it talks about the, the lesson, and it's kind of like a little congratulations about what yes. you've done so far in the course. Nice touch. If you go on her, if you use her links, um, like some of them are affiliate or whatever. Yeah. Um, um, the If you look at the URL, it says Marie loves you, and then it takes you to whatever the oh. link is. And so it's just like these tiny little touches that are in there. Her um, videos are obviously like bar none as far as like production value yeah. goes. Um, and so I knew I wasn't going to do face to camera in mine. And, okay. um, and so mine are um, animated, but I knew that I wanted to do high value production. So yeah. I just did animated instead of, you know, like Marie yeah. Forleo yeah. kind of <laughs> studio that she has. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is that she uh, releases her courses, um, like her modules, um, by the week. And then you get bonus modules even after, like, the live part of the sessions is closed and um, you have it for life. So those are all things that I've implemented in my course as well. That's awesome. Except for the, except for the Robin loves you. I haven't quite figured out how she's doing it. But you do love people, and people need to know that. And it's evident anyway. So, <laughs> um, Last question is, although that you probably just answered it, but it's what's the best learning experience that you've had? Oh, well, that you know, I actually, um, I was one of those course quitters in that course, so that wasn't ah, quite the best learning experience I know. How I was one of those, like, I was digging around looking yeah. I was like hacking her course is yeah. what I was doing. I wasn't like necessarily there to learn yeah. about these And that's school. a that's a business course that um Robin's talking as well. It's not necessarily instructional design or whatever, so No, yeah. it's like for people who want to do create online businesses. Yeah. 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 Okay, so um, best learning experience? So my best learning experience I mean, you know, the recency fallacy, I mean it has to be currently the things that I'm learning about uh, my students in the IELTS Courses Academy. I mean, I feel like I've learned so much about delivering for my learners wow. by having them with me all the time. You know what I mean? Like, just really, yeah. uh, I'm constantly being updated on, like, uh, how to support them and and give back to them. I, I think that's really been, a learn like, my favorite learning experience so far. That's really cool. I think now that's twice it's come up in our conversation about putting yourself in the user's shoes and from an L&D perspective. So if you're an instructional designer, you're in the L&D space, OD, whatever, go do and be your own learner because then you will really empathize and have better success for the training programs, whether they're online or face-to-face -face, that you are creating. Yeah. Well, I'm wrapping it up now. Thank you so much for being an absolute legend um, for giving <laughs> your knowledge today and also just the things that you are doing in the industry. Appreciate your time and thanks for being here. Well, Kim, I love hanging out with you. Seriously.